Section 7 of the Crusades by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 The First Crusade, Part 3. Thus was gathered on the eastern shores of the Hellespont and the Bosphorus a host we may well believe more vast than that which Xerxes drove before him for the invasion of Europe, and leaving behind it in utter insignificance the scanty force with which alexander attempted and achieved the conquest of asia when tribes or a nation pour out their whole population men women and children alike there is practically no limit to the numbers which may be set in motion nor is it any tax on our credulity to believe that a hundred thousand horsemen fully armed in the light coats of mail worn during the first crusading age were marshalled on the bithynian plains even if we put aside as an absurd exaggeration the notion of the chaplain of count baldwin that the whole body of the crusaders amounted to not less than six millions their strength and valour were soon to be tested they were now face to face with the turks on whose cowardice urban the second had enlarged with so much complacency before the council of clermont the sultan david or Khalija arslan placed his family and treasures in his capital city of nicaea and retreated with fifty thousand horsemen to the mountains whence he swooped down from time to time on the outposts of the christians by these his city was formally invested and for seven weeks it was assailed to little purpose by the old instruments of roman warfare while some of the besiegers shot their weapons from the hill on which were mouldering the bones of the fanatic followers of peter it was protected to the west by the Iskanian lake, and so long as the Turks had command of this lake, they felt themselves safe. But Alexius sent thither on sledges a large number of boats, and the city, subjected to a double blockade, submitted to the emperor, who was in no way anxious to see the crusaders masters of the place. The crusaders were making ready for the last assault, when they saw the imperial banner floating on the walls their disappointment at the escape of the miscreants or unbelievers for so they delighted to speak of them was vented in threats which seemed to bode a renewal of the old troubles but alexius with gifts which added force to his words professed that his only desire now as it had been was to forward them safely on their journey nor had they to go many stages before they found themselves again confronted with their adversary the conflict took place near the phrygian dorylium and seemed at first to portend dire defeat to the crusaders more than once the issue of the day seemed to be turned by the indomitable personal bravery of the norman robert of tancred and of bowmond and when even those seemed likely to be borne down they received timely succours from Godfrey and Hugh of Vermandois, from Bishop Ademar of Puy, and from Raymond, Count of Toulouse. Still the Turks held out, and it seemed likely that they would long hold out, when the appearance of the last division of Raymond's army filled them with the fear that a new host was upon them. The Crusaders won a considerable victory. Three thousand knights belonging to the enemy had been slain, and Kalija Arslan was hurrying away to enlist the services of his kinsmen. Meanwhile the Latin hosts were sweeping onwards toward Iconium, Heraclea, 
and the Pisidian Antioch. Their dangers were great, their sufferings terrible. The son of Kalija Arslan had hurried on before them with ten thousand horsemen, and declared before the gates of each city that they came as conquerors, not as fugitives. They had ravaged the lands as they came along. In the town they sacked the churches, plundered the houses, emptied the granaries, and the crusaders who followed them had to journey over a naked soil under the burning Phrygian sun. Hundreds died from the heat, and dogs and goats took the place of the baggage horses which had perished. At length Tancred with his troop found himself before Tarsus, the birthplace and the home of that single-hearted apostle who long ago had preached a gospel strangely unlike the creed of the crusaders. Following rapidly behind him, Baldwin saw with keen jealousy the banner of the Italian chief floating on its towers, and insisted on taking the precedence. Tancred pleaded the choice of the people, and his own promise to protect them. But the intrigues of Baldwin changed their humour, and the rejection of Tancred by the men of Tarsus was followed by an attempt at private war between Tancred and Baldwin, in which the troops of Tancred were overborne so early was the first harvest of murderous discord reaped among the holy warriors of the cross it was ruin however to stay where they were and the main army again began its march to undergo once more the old monotony of hardship and peril a very small force would have sufficed to disorganize and rout them as they clambered over the defiles of mount taurus nor could raymond recovering from a terrible illness or godfrey suffering from wounds inflicted by a bear have done much to help them but for the present their enemies were dismayed and baldwin brother of godfrey hastened with eagerness to obey a summons which besought him to aid the greek or armenian tyrant of edessa as alexius had done to his brother so this chief welcomed baldwin as his son but baldwin having once entered the city cared nothing for the means which had brought him thither, and the death of his adoptive father was followed by the establishment at Edessa of a Latin principality which lasted for fifty-four, or some have thought, forty-seven years. Baldwin had anticipated the unconditional surrender of Samosata, but the Turkish governor had some of the Edessenes in his power, and he refused to give up the city except on the payment of ten thousand gold pieces. The Turk, shortly afterwards, fell into Baldwin's hands and was put to death. Meanwhile, the main army of the Crusaders was advancing toward the Syrian capital Antioch, that ancient and luxurious city whose fame had gone over the whole Roman world for its magnificence, its unbounded wealth, its soft delights, and its unholy pleasures. The days of its greatest splendor had passed away. Its walls were partially in ruins, its buildings were in some parts crumbling away or had already fallen, but against assailants utterly ignorant and awkward in all that relates to the blockade of cities it was still a formidable position. Nor could they invest it until they passed the iron bridge, so called from its iron-plated gates of nine stone arches which spanned the stream of the Ifrin at a distance of nine miles from the city. This bridge was carried by the impetuous charge of Robert of Normandy, aided by the more steady efforts of Godfrey in October 1097, 
and in the language of an age which delighted in round numbers a hundred thousand warriors hurried across to seize the splendid prize which now seemed almost within their grasp but the city was in the hands of men who had been long accustomed to despise the greeks and had not yet learnt to respect the valour of the latins preparing himself for a resolute defence the seljukian governor bagassian had sent away as useless if not mischievous most of the christians within the town and the crusading chiefs had begun to discuss the prudence of postponing all operations till the spring when raymond of toulouse with some other chiefs insisted that delay would imply fear and that the imputation of cowardice would ensure the paralysis of their enterprise the city was therefore at once invested so far as the forces of the crusaders could suffice to encircle it and a siege began which in the eyes of the military historian must be absolutely without interest and of which the issue was decided by paroxysms of fanatical vehemence on the one side and by lack not of bravery but of generalship on the other of the eastern and northern walls the blockade was complete of the west it was partial and the failure to invest a portion of the western wall with two out of the five gates of the city left the movements of the turks in this direction free but the besiegers were in no hurry to begin the work of death the wealth of the harvest and the vintage spread before them its irresistible temptations and the herds feeding in the rich pastures seemed to promise an endless feast the cattle the corn and the wine were alike wasted with besotted folly while the turks within the walls received tidings it is said of all that passed in the crusaders camp from some greek and armenian christians to whom they allowed free egress and ingress of this knowledge they availed themselves in planning the sallies by which they caused great distress to the besiegers whose clumsy engines and devices seemed to produce no result beyond the waste of time and who felt perhaps that they had done something when they blocked up the gate of the bridge with huge stones dug from the neighbouring quarries three months passed away and the crusaders found themselves not conquerors but in desperate straits from famine the winter rains had turned the land round their camp into a swamp and lack of food left them more and more unable to resist the pestilential diseases which were rapidly thinning their numbers a foraging expedition under bowman and tancred filled the camp with food it was again recklessly wasted the second famine scared away tatikias the lieutenant of the greek emperor alexius but the crusading chiefs were perhaps still more disgusted by the desertion of william of melon called the carpenter from the sledge-hammer blows which he dealt out in battle hunger obtained a victory even over the hermit peter who was stealing away with william of melon when he with his companion was caught by tancred and brought back to the tent of bowmond for a moment the look of things was changed by the arrival of ambassadors from egypt to the fatimite caliph of that country the progress of the crusading armies had thus far brought with it but little satisfaction the humiliation of the seljukian turks could not fail to bring gain to himself if the flood of latin conquests could be checked and turned back in time his generals besieged jerusalem entire and when the fatimite once more ruled in palestine his envoys hastened to the crusaders camp to announce the deliverance of the holy land from its oppressors 
to assure to all unarmed and peaceable pilgrims a month's unmolested sojourn in jerusalem and to promise them his aid during their march on condition that they should acknowledge his supremacy within the limits of his syrian empire the arguments and threats of the caliph were alike thrown away the latin chiefs disclaimed all interests in the feuds and quarrels of rival sultans and in the fortunes of mohammedan sects god himself had destined jerusalem for the christians and if any held it who were not christians these were usurpers whose resistance must be punished by their expulsion or their death the envoys departed not encouraged by this answer and still more perplexed by the appearance of plenty and by the magnificence of a camp in which they had expected to see a terrible spectacle of disorder and misery the resolute persistence of the besiegers convinced bagassian of the need of reinforcements these were hastening to him from caesarea aleppo and other places when they were cut off by bowman and raymond who sent a multitude of heads to the envoys of the fatimite caliph and discharged many hundreds from their engines into the city of antioch the turks had their opportunity for reprisals when the arrival of some pisan and genoese ships at the mouth of the orontes in march ten ninety eight drew off the greater part of the besieging army the crusaders were returning with provisions and arms when their enemies started upon them from an ambuscade the battle was fierce but the defeat of raymond which threatened dire disaster was changed into victory on the arrival of godfrey and the norman robert whose exploits equalled or surpassed if we are to believe the story even those of arthur lancelot or tristram hundreds if not thousands of turks fell their bodies were buried by their comrades in the cemetery without the walls the christians dug them up severed the heads from the trunks and paraded the ghastly trophies on their pikes not forgetting to send a goodly number to the egyptian caliph by way of showing him how his seljukian friends or enemies had fared the picture is disgusting but if we shut our eyes to these loathsome details the truth of the history is gone we are dealing with the wars of savages and it is right that we should know this the next scene exhibits godfrey and bowman in fierce quarrel about a splendid tent which being intended as a gift for the former had been seized by an armenian chief and sent to the latter but there was now more serious business at hand rumour spoke of the near approach of a persian army and the besieged under the plea of wishing to arrange terms of capitulation obtained a truce which they sought probably only for the sake of gaining time the days passed by but no offers were made and their disposition was shown by seizing a crusading knight in the groves near the city and tearing his body in pieces the latins returned with increased fury to the siege but the defence although more feeble was still protracted and bowman began to feel not only that fraud might succeed where force had failed but that from fraud he might reap not safety merely but wealth and greatness his plans were laid with a renegade christian named Ferouz, high in the favour of the governor with whom he had come into contact either during the truce or in some other way by splendid promises bowman ensured the zealous aid of his new ally and then came forward in the council with the assurance that he could place the city in their hands 
but that he could do this only on condition that he should rule in Antioch, as Baldwin ruled in Edessa. His claim was angrily opposed by the Provencal Raymond, but this opposition was overruled, and it was resolved that the plan should be carried out at once. There was need for so doing. Rumors spread within the city that some attempt was to be made to betray the place to the besiegers, and hints or open accusations pointed out Ferouz as the traitor. Like other traitors, the renegade thought it best to anticipate the charge by urging that the guards of the towers should on the very next day be changed. His proposal was received as indubitable proof of his innocence and his faithfulness, but he had made up his mind that Antioch should fall that night, and that night, by means of a rope-ladder, bowmen with about sixty followers, the ropes broke before more could ascend, climbed up the wall. Seizing ten towers of which all the guards were killed, they opened a gate, and the Christian host rushed in. The banner of bowmen rose on one of the towers, the trumpets sounded for the onset, and a carnage began in which at first the assailants took no heed to distinguish between the Christian and the Turk. In the awful confusion of the moment, some of the besieged made their way to the citadel, and there shut themselves in, ready to resist to the death. Of the rest, few escaped. Ten thousand, it is said, were massacred. Bagassian, with some friends, passed out beyond the besiegers' lines, but fainting from loss of blood he fell from his horse, and his companions hurried on. A Syrian Christian heard his groans, and striking off his head, carried the prize to the camp of the conquerors. Ferouz lived to be a second time a renegade, and to close his career as a thief. The victory was for the crusaders a change from famine to abundance, and their feasting was accompanied by the wildest riot and the most filthy debauchery. But if heedless waste may have been one of the most venial of their sins, it was the greatest of their blunders. The reports which spoke of the approach of the Persians were not false. The Turks within the citadel suddenly found that they were rather besiegers than besieged, and that the Christians were hemmed in by the myriads of Kerboga, prince of Mosul, and the warriors of Kalija Arslan. The old horrors of famine were now repeated, but in greater intensity, and the doom of the Latin host seemed to be sealed. Stephen, Count of Chartres, had deserted his companions before the fall of the city. Others now followed his example, and with him set out on their return to Europe. In Phrygia, Stephen encountered the Emperor Alexius, who was marching to the aid of the crusaders, not only with a Greek army, but with a force of well-appointed pilgrims who had reached Constantinople after the departure of Godfrey and his fellows. The story told by Stephen drove out of his head every thought except that of his own safety. The order for retreat was given, and the pilgrim warriors, not less than the Greeks, were compelled to turn their faces westwards. In vain, Guy, a brother of Bowman, pleaded his duty and his vow. His words were unheeded, and his indignation wrung from him the desperate assertion that if the divine being were omnipotent, he would not suffer such things to be done. End of section 7